It's about showing these horrible things that exist alongside beautiful things that exist as a way to not just say nature is beautiful, to acknowledge that those things exist and then start the dialogue of like, where do we go from here? I'm not out there to give solutions. We need to make artwork that makes people aware of the consequences for their actions, essentially. Welcome. I'm Doug Casina. I'm an artist, a gallerist, a curator, and a collector. And this is Artbound, where we deconstruct the myths and misconceptions of the art world. We have the conversations here with artists that aren't going to be found anywhere else. Well, thank you for joining us. And in this episode, we're diving into one of the oldest conversations that you can have around art, which is landscape. Uh, today, I'm joined by Don Stenson, who is in his studio in Des Moines, Iowa. Hi, Don. Thank you for joining us today. Hi, Doug. And Gregory Euclid is joining us from St. Peter's, Minnesota in his barn studio, I believe. Yeah. Hi. Thanks for having me. Before we dive into the subject of landscape, I want to tell you why I have these two guests with me. They're both artists who have informed my personal dialogue around landscape. Um, Don Stenson is an artist who's represented by David B. Smith and Gerald Peters in Santa Fe. And he's a landscape painter who also is really exploring um, this conversation between culture and industry and the landscape as well. He has works in the Phoenix Art Museum, the Tucson Art Museum, the Denver Art Museum, and uh, just recently did a residency in Cody, Wyoming, where hopefully he'll tell us some good stories about Kanye West. Um, also joining us, like I said, from his studio in Minnesota is Gregory Euclid. Uh, Gregory's an artist and a teacher. He's had exhibitions at Mass Mocha, a big uh, installation at the Museum of Arts and Design in New York. Um, he's really well known also for doing the album cover for Bon Iver, which led to the development of his own record label called Thesis. So thank you guys again for joining me. And like I you know, indicated there, you both have had... Um, parts of your practice that have informed the way that I define what landscape is and how we speak about landscape kind of in a contemporary context. Um, I guess this first question will be for you, Don. How do you see the role of landscape in contemporary art? I just see it as an opportunity to really examine our lives and the spaces we are occupying and changing. So as a practice for me, it's just a matter of looking at things that puzzle me and and then imagining how that can engage painting and or a history of images or i mean uh painting drawing they just become a way for me to engage the history of photography the history of landscape development um the history of national parks just a way to kind of question where we are well and gregory you incorporate a lot of non-traditional elements into your depiction of landscape, um, which is really fascinating to me because you use um, 
almost models that are pre-manufactured. I've seen recently you've been uh, using plastic items that I think you found on the beaches of San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Um, could you talk about how medium has started to inform your depiction of the landscape? So for me, like landscape is something that I'm in frequently. You know, it's uh, land is what I'm in. And landscape is the act of trying to, uh, through political means or through cultural means, like define what land is. So when we think about like photography, you point that viewfinder toward an area and you say, ah, this thing is important, you know, and you say, this is the view. I'm always fascinated by like scenic turnouts um, where, you know, there's this giant mountain and there's this road going up the mountain and then like they've cut out a section to have the road there and extend out over you know, the beautiful area, but then you look behind you and they dime, you know, dynamited the cliff away so that like, you know, it's just a clear cliff face there. Um, and it's that, that kind of idea of, um, what does it mean to be in the land? So for me, similar to what, you know, you were saying is that like, uh, I want to explore this material, you know, the natural world. And it always felt to me a little bit disingenuous to go home into the studio and then put this experience into a rectangle, you know, a flat rectangle, because the world is so dynamic, the world is so textural. So I wanted to go out and start collecting things and introduce those things that I brought back from the land into my work. And the more I did that, the more I realized, like, I was being selective about what I collected. You know, there's natural elements out in the land, uh, but I was finding a ton of garbage and trash out there as well. And I had to, you know, at some point just be honest with myself and say, look, this is stuff that needs to be included in the work. Like, this is landscape today. Like, there's styrofoam everywhere. There's plastic bags everywhere. There's cigarette butts everywhere. So I started introducing all those materials into the work as a way to kind of, like, uh, juxtapose these beautiful scenes with the reality that exists out there. And so uh, I build all that diorama stuff myself, but uh, I, I like to find things that are, you know, not man-made or I mean, are man-made, not things that should be in the land necessarily like plastic bags or styrofoam and then somehow incorporate them into the work to, you know, recontextualize them and, uh, kind of play around with how you can juxtapose those materials, you know, traditional landscape views with the garbage that we find out there. Well, and I love that you're telling that narrative about kind of the introduction of man-made materials, not only through the medium, but into the narrative of the landscape itself. And for me, I think that's what's so exciting about having the two of you as guests is that you're both telling this narrative in ways that I think is missing a lot of the time in traditional landscape painting. Um, You know, this tradition of landscape painting uh, here in the West, at least, comes from like the Thomas Moran or the Bierstadt. And those guys all had kind of an objective to why they were painting. You know, several of them were hired by like the railroad companies to kind of... uh, bring forth this idea of, you know, uh, manifest destiny and travel West. And, uh, you know, there was, there's always kind of an underpinning of some kind of objective in it. Yeah. And I think, yeah, exactly. (laughs) There was something to say, like, I, I look at the same thing with like Dutch still life and, 
back in the day, they used to add like little ears of corn, like to show how impressive their power was that they've been able to travel overseas to the new world. And they brought back with them this ear of corn. And that was something that like became the status symbol. It was something that was, everybody would identify at the time as a narrative in the painting. I feel like that's still a really big part of how we speak to painting. Um, but landscape can be a little more difficult because it's how do you start telling those stories within the context of something that's not necessarily narrative. And both of you guys are doing such a fabulous job with this. I know Don, uh, in his kind of Western landscape depictions, has had a lot of kind of follies of man, you know, uh, buildings that have been abandoned. Could you kind of describe how that came into your practice and where that's moving? Well, I just got very interested in the failures and the things that aren't usually included in the that rectangle of a painting, What the, those established views. I was fascinated, uh, Gregory, about what you were saying about the turnouts, the roadside. You know, here, look here. Mm-hmm. Don't look over here. Don't look at the, the cliff that's been blown away. So, um, I and I started out thinking that... Uh, uh, that it was important to slow people down to really help them take time to look at a picture. I felt that photography had had made us all fast lookers. And of course, as it's gotten more digital, we're all going at greater and greater speed. So painting is a great way to kind of slow look. Um, And and it, it became apparent to me over time that most of the stuff that we're experiencing as we walk through the spaces of our lives aren't in paintings, aren't in photographs. People aren't even thinking to look at it. They can't pull up in their mind an image of a cigarette butt, an image of the plastic bottles. They have to be, you know, fed it over and over again. And when you put something in the rectangle of our painting, you're giving it an elevated uh, cultural status. And people start to go, oh, why is that art? Why is that important to look? So, you know, that viewfinder or the, the, what I chose became real, a really important kind of uh, uh, decision. And then I kept wanting to expand it. So these paintings got really long and I started adding panels because I wanted it to be more and more inclusive. Uh, and you know there there's no uh loss or there's no absence of failures in the landscape of our of our nation um but you know what's what became interesting is these things started to reveal different stories to me over time often there was a great success something really interesting a technological uh uh innovation um like uh the spray gunite people would use for um, kidney-shaped pools in the 50s. Um, you know, all of a sudden those appear and you, I started finding these old ones and then the question became, what happened? And how to get those kind of stories um, out in a, in a way that sort of suspended judgment and let people have the experience on their own terms became a lot of the problem for me or a lot of the fun. So what happened to those pools? Uh, well, one of my fa- <laughs> one of my favorite pools was is in uh, 
south of Van Horn, Texas, kind of on the way to Marfa and Big Ben and all that. And um, it's had like several iterations. But I think initially what happened is a um, uh, an almond grove bought up the water rights and simply drained the town. And I have thought, oh, that's that's a kind of a, a sad story. But a lot of the pools um, became abandoned or if they were public pools around um, the, the early 60s as um, they, you know, became mandated to integrate them. So, you know, some of these stories are dark and important, important to tell. How do you start? telling these kind of narrative stories and landscape. I think that's a real kind of subtlety that, um, you know, I think the plein air type of um, uh, artist may not really be picking up on. You know, they obviously have this amazing reverence for the land. They're going out there hiking, setting up their their easels and, and painting from life. Uh, but there might not be that kind of narrative that's, um, uh, you know, attached with whatever reverence they might have. Um, have there been some ways, Gregory, that you've really kind of seen that help you integrate, you know, kind of the narrative of environmentalism or other things that you've noticed artists doing well or that you've really picked on up in, in your individual practice? Well, it's interesting because, like, land, it just is, right? Like, trees are trees, rivers are rivers, and so on. And we prescribe meaning to them, you know. Uh, we want to preserve land sometimes. Um, you know, you see the result of that uh, kind of mindset playing out in wildfires and stuff like that, where... Uh, you know, we build a house next to it and then we want it to stay the same way it was. We tend to forget that sometimes land is man-made. So like the case of like Central Park, uh, you know, there's a Central Park committees that like make sure you can't remove a single pine cone from the, from the area, you know, uh, probably because there's so many people there and they don't want to deplete the resource. But also they look at that thing as nature where actually it was man-made. Uh, they brought the boulders in, they filled in the space, they designed the entire space to look like nature, but it was Frederick Law Olmsted who built the place. Uh, and so sometimes like we have a really interesting relationship with, with land and how we want to interact with it. And that's why I said in the beginning, it's kind of political. Um, you know, we, we decide what we want to do with land. Uh, so like even in Denver, there's the, the, is it the arsenal or the armory or there's like a giant place where it's a park now, but it used to be, they buried a bunch of like chemicals and I, I, I can't remember the entire story, but, uh, but now it's like this beautiful park and everyone likes to go there. Right. And it used to be this place where it was like, no one could go. Do you know what I'm talking about? There? It was a place where they used to mine uranium yeah. for trigger switches for nuclear bombs. Sure. So like yeah. the, when I make work, uh, I think the, when you're saying like the plain air painters, they go out and they, they look at something that they find beautiful or curious, or they find the, you know, the colors are fascinating or the, the, just the forms are fascinating. 
Um, or it's just grandiose, you know, like you look at Thomas Cole or something like that, like, you know, famous painting, like the Oxbow, you look at that and you just go, wow, it's like a, you know, beautiful scene. Right. Um, but we're kind of taught that that's beautiful. And I think people that go out and paint those things, they're, they're responding to land in the same way that I respond to it. Why I was drawn to landscape painting in the first place. Like, first of all, there's a curiosity, uh, for me, but then after that curiosity, I wonder like, well, you know, I think like Don was saying, like, uh, the failures are interesting. And I would argue that like much of the landscape is a failure because <laughs> if you look at the problems that are going on right now, um, you know, we have, we have just mismanagement or misuse in, in general. Um, but when, when I go out into the land, I, I've, I'm first fascinated by it. I'm first finding it like extremely beautiful. And then I ask myself questions like, why am I finding this beautiful? You know, what is it about it that makes it beautiful to me? Is it that I was taught that this is beautiful? Like, why is one thing more beautiful than another? You know, why do we preserve the Grand Canyon, but not preserve, uh, you know, grass field? They both have an equal importance in the ecosystem. So we have a tendency to want to preserve these things that are like really grand and have a, a certain amount of like draw to them, the, you know, the, the waterfall that's really huge, the canyon that's massive, the blah, 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 right? Um, but when you understand ecology, like you were saying, you understand that some of the boring things are just as important, if not more important, than some of these uh, things that we are really dead set on preserving. Um, so, you know, in, in my work, I'm trying to paint that beautiful stuff, the stuff that my mom would like, you know, that's what I always say. You know, my mom comes and she looks at my paintings and she goes, son, I really like that part. And it's of course the traditional nature scene. And then she goes, but why'd you put all that other stuff in there? You know, like as if that's, that's somehow ruining it for her. So she prefers nature as a construct that is beautiful, that is un, unaffected by man. Um, and I think that's a very traditional way of looking at nature. I also prefer that because I've kind of been taught that, but I also know that uh, like when Don was talking, I was like, you know what I would like to do? I would like to go to these scenic turnouts and just take a picture of what's on the ground, just at the guardrail, because at the guardrail, there's condoms, there's cigarette butts, there's Dorito bags. There's so much shit all around that scenic turnout that it's like fascinating to see like someone came to the turnout they got out of their car they looped off across the landscape they had a cigarette and they're like damn that's beautiful and then flicked their cigarette butt onto the ground right in front of them and you know didn't think about the the contrast or the weird irony of that uh, so it, those kind of areas are fascinating to me. And again, it's like, uh, yes, that, that is beautiful out there. But also I find what's happening right at that guardrail also to be just as interesting and just as fascinating and telling about our culture and telling about how we construct landscape or how we view landscape. Um, you know, so those kind of things creep their way really uh, strongly, heavily into my work. I think that sounds like a really fabulous next series for you. <laughs> I also, I, I was interested in, you know, a lot of times they have these like weird viewfinders that look like little, uh, you know, aliens. 
you put oh, yeah, the coin yeah. in and then you can look out. I wanted to do a series where I, I put those viewfinders that were actually instead of viewfinders like uh, telescopes, they were microscopes and they were on the other side of the scenic turnout uh, facing the cliff that was dynamited away so that you could put a coin in and look through the microscope at the cliff and get like a, you know, a total converse view of the scenic, the vista, you would get the microscopic. Yeah. Well, and I think that's an interesting point because you're bringing up what is it important that we look at in the landscape? Um, how do we kind of define what's important in, you know, painting, I think is also what type of conversation we're looking to have. And if we're just wanting to see the beauty uh, in that landscape too, that's, I think, a very surface conversation to have, especially nowadays with looking at landscape. I, uh, Don and I pre-podcast uh, were talking a little bit about this idea of the sublime, of, you know, this... Uh, man versus nature this understanding of you know looking out into this vastness that's you know the either the ocean or this big landscape with this kind of glimpse of hope of you know as man as uh i don't know uh conqueror or whatever it might be that's this manifest destiny or something that's been built into the way that landscape i think here in the united states has been perceived um what are the important conversations that we should be having in a 21st century landscape painting? I, um, if I don't, you don't mind if I go first, I, you know, my wife is a public policy mediator who worked in environment a lot. Um, so I was constantly aware of these dialogues in government and partnerships with uh, public, private people getting together and being very smart and just trying to organize effective guidance for the culture. Now, getting that to happen in, in government is is challenging, but I was aware, holy cow, there's just really smart people all the time trying to figure out the best way to do this. And, it, and it's really hard to picture that process. It's really hard to elevate um, the you know, the process of coming to an effective compromise. Um, you know, when something is compromised, it's ruined. So that became a little project for me just to think about what, how would I make, uh, you know, this, this, a sense of, of, of a good solution, a good decision, dramatic and romantic on the scale of, uh, you know, sublime ruin. And, and, I'm not sure I've gotten there, but I've, I've given it a good shot every now and then trying to uh, dramatize that. And that's one of the things I like about your work, Gregory. I feel like the, the styrofoam supporting the, uh, you know, the different elements of traditional landscape is really a beautiful solution to bringing everything in. Yeah, I think when we demonize things, um, we neglect the reason why those things are there right? Styrofoam exists for a reason, right? Like it's, uh, it's useful. Cell phones exist for a reason. You know, everyone wants a cell phone because they make our lives supposedly a little bit easier. You know, you get in a car accident, you don't have to like walk to a phone. You, you know, you run out of something or you need something, you just text someone. But also then those minerals that are used in the batteries and in the cell phones, you know, uh, conflict minerals, they're mined somewhere. They come from the earth somewhere. 
And I think if you stop anyone on the street and say, hey, the, the minerals that are in your cell phone, the things that are required of the earth that are in your cell phone, not only damage the earth, but also the people who are doing the mining of those things are treated in a way that you would be appalled by. What would you do about it? And the people are going to be like, yeah, that's horrible, but I can't live without a cell phone, right? And right there lies the problem. We've created a perceived ease, the straw, the styrofoam cup, the takeout container that's made out of styrofoam. We've created a perceived ease, but we've not shown the connection between the, con you know, or, or a consequence of how that thing then causes problems in the world. And even when we do show that, consequence like if i if i approach someone and say look the minerals in your cell phone are causing grave harm to someone else does that bother you they're going to say yes it bothers me but i don't know what to do and so you know one of the things in in my work i like to show both sides like the styrofoam isn't demonized in a sense it's kind of just saying like look this exists um but we need to kind of figure out ways in which uh, we can solve the problem where we're not because the petroleum industry isn't going away, you know. So we have to say, like, okay, well, how can we make something smarter? How can we make incentives for the use of this or the recycling of this better? Like, I get myself into a conundrum every time I get a you know yogurt container because I eat the yogurt out of the container and it's a plastic container, and then I have to like recycle it. But I also need to use hot water to wash the yogurt container out. And I'm like, okay, so I just used energy and soap to wash this container out. I frequently think about the amount of water, clean water that I use to clean out my stuff that I would like to recycle. So there are these like real kind of like uh, symbiotic problems that exist, I feel. And I don't know if uh, scientists or the media is doing a really good job of educating everyone to the point where they say like, yes, here is a solution. Um, I have a friend of mine who went to grad school and, you know, I was complaining at home about kids not turning off the lights and stuff like that. And she said, you know what, you could save way more energy by putting a lid on your boiling water for the rest of the year than, you know, you would ever save by, turning the lights off or on, you know, after you leave the room. And so there are these like little tweaks, little hacks that we can do in our life that save the energy or affect the planet um, on a greater level than we could ever know. But like, I just don't think everyone, everyone knows those things. So I don't know if someone's going to get that when they look at my work. But uh, I think that for me in my mind, I'm thinking about there are these conflicts that exist between natural beauty and then the man, you know, the man made stuff that exists out there or how man uses land. I'll often put open pit mines in my work, you know, in the middle of this like beautiful scene. And, you know, I can't say the open pit mine is bad because like here I am benefiting from it. I'm sitting at a table that has steel on it, you know, like all, all those things. So I just think that uh, for me in my work, it's about kind of showing these horrible things that exist 
alongside beautiful things that exist as a way to not just say the world, nature is beautiful, you know, to acknowledge that those things exist and then start the dialogue of like, where do we go from here? I'm not out there to give solutions. I haven't spent my career studying those things, but I, I do think like we need to make artwork that makes people aware of the consequences for their actions, essentially. Well, and I think you nailed it there. You're proposing questions, right? I think that's the beautiful thing about art is it's an introduction to have a conversation. Um, and the thing that I think both of you do so well is you use beauty to seduce the viewer into having those conversations. Because I think sometimes if you hit people over the head too directly with the messaging, they don't spend the time with the work to actually allow themselves to start analyzing and asking those questions of themselves about, okay, so why is the artist using this material? What am I looking at? How do I feel about what I'm seeing? Because they, they're like, okay, great. I get it. I'm walking on. Um, so I really feel that's for me, one of the most valuable tools that we have in contemporary artwork is this ability to engage people to think. Um, and I think that's where the change is really going to come from. Yeah. And I think using like traditional beauty as a lure, that's the hook is, is a really effective way because you draw those people in who are probably most susceptible to thinking the way, you know, like my mother, <laughs> she's, you know, she looks at that part of the painting and she's like, wow, that's really beautiful. And, you know, then I'm also like, Hey mom, why are you buying your milk from quick trip or whatever? You know, <laughs> you know, there's, there's a consequence to that, you know, to a, from a gas station instead of from a co-op or something like that, you know? So Don, what are the conversations you're hoping people really want to have after looking at your work what is the question that you're asking the viewer in the landscape i i i want them to go out into the world and just start looking differently i want them to see something they haven't seen in a painting before and uh go out in their lives and notice things that are there all the time um with a kind of uh deeper understanding or a desire for a deeper understanding. Um, and I, and I think, I think, you know, the beauty as a lure works. Um, what I've noticed is the more beautiful you make something, um, that people regard as ugly, kind of the more shocking or gr the more pull it has on them. They're, they're really sort of, uh, there's kind of a friction that happens like, oh, I don't want to see that as beautiful. But once they do, they're rethinking their experience of it in their lives. So that's just a little change, but I, I really feel very happy when that happens. And the way I know is people will come back and tell me, oh my God, I saw, I've, I've, I've had one of these things, you know, whatever it is. It's, of course, everybody has a gas station, but so many people will come back and say, oh, I saw a station I think you'll like. And I'll say, well, why do you think I'll like it? And then we have that conversation. Um, uh, you know, things like, uh, and then I learned stuff. I mean, I, it, it never occurred to, I mean, I'm kind of fascinated by brownfields, you know, landscapes that have been polluted and then brought back. 
very hard to paint if they're successfully brought back. So it's right when they're in that kind of fallow phase before action has been taken that they're really kind of uh, pregnant with potential. So what, right when they're at their worst, you can, you can see them uh, as a possibility. And painting those areas that people want to overlook as possibility um, is just brings up all kinds of conversations um, for me in, in terms of the reception of the work. Well, I think we're starting to scratch the surface on this. And so this is going to be a great place for us to take a break. And when we come back, we're just going to dive a little deeper. Well, we are back. Um, and I think we've been kind of hinting around at one of the fundamental kind of dilemmas about talking about landscape, which is the environmental effect. Um, you know, the physical use of materials has been a way, I think, Gregory, that you're starting to introduce this into your work, also talking about strip mining, but also there's a lot of subtlety there with, uh, as you were indicating, you know, between what our stewardship ideas are versus our practical use and how we show up uh, just being people. Um, how do we talk about environmentalism in the landscape? And is there urgency to this? How do we approach this as artists? So I'm just trying to think that when you were answering, when you were asking the question, uh, I thought of someone, um, an artist, and I can't remember their name, but um, basically the idea is that the artist did not want to come out and say, this is what I want you to think. They wanted to leave something up to the uh, the viewer, so to speak. Otherwise, it becomes similar to that manifest destiny, that propaganda artwork. I do think there's something valuable about like saying, hey, look, man, the planet is kind of in danger and we need to do something about it. Um, I just don't feel confident that I'm the person who's the one that's going to be able to say, this is what we need to do about it. Um, I think there are people out there who are a lot smarter than I am that have the answers to it. What I think the biggest problem is, is what Don alluded to earlier, is that the political will, the people, the mass of public needs to say this is a problem and we need to do something uh, to fix it. So it's just like, you know, anything else, like gun violence, any one of these topics, it, it, there needs to be political will to fix these, you know, to fix these problems. So I see my artwork as being uh, simply by the fact that I'm a landscape painter or simply by the fact that I'm engaging in landscape in a way that asks those questions. I'm doing uh, a service to the, the quote unquote cause of environmentalism because I'm saying this is important. Like every day I wake up, I do something pertaining to landscape and I post it out there and I say, you know, this is what I'm thinking about and so on. It's not that I say like, well, here's an alternative to selenium, which is a conflict mineral. You know, like I don't have those, I don't have that expertise, but what I do have is the ability to say, look, I've thought about land. Uh, I see these overarching problems, this systemic kind of issue with how we use land and how we interact with it. And I want you to be aware of it because I think there's enough people out there who just 
don't think about it on a day-to-day basis, that my artwork is an invitation to think about it. I totally agree. I think art in general is there to pose questions, maybe not to offer solutions. Agreed. I think um, it's, and and then from the puzzle becomes how to, how to make the questions um, open, open open-ended so people can come up with their own solutions. So there can be an open dialogue and, and not like, I love this idea that you're not going to give the answer. You're going to um, uh, ask a question that leads to further thinking, to further conversation, and kind of elevates the dialogue. Well, and I've also heard, not just in maybe this issue, but in other issues in painting too, when you start getting into social justice or other aspects of, uh, you know, kind of that realm of dialogue where, uh, you know, people are like, I don't want to isolate my viewers. I don't want, you know, a certain segment of the population to automatically dismiss what I'm doing as an artist because of their political views. Yeah, you know, because those might be the people that. you want to talk to the most. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting, though, right? Because if your entire career is built upon preaching to the choir, so to speak, um, are you really having any effect? Um, yeah, I mean, a lot of nature lovers are, I mean, nature or land is a very interesting, you know, topic because it you get into rural parts and there's people who love hunting. There's people who farm and all of these things, uh, typically, you know, um, uh, the dialogue between city and rural inevitably comes up. Um, but when you think about like, uh, so I live out in a kind of a rural area now. Um, I lived in Minneapolis for 10 years and then we moved out to St. Peter, which is uh, South about an hour. And lots of farming going on out here. Uh, and there's a lot of organic farmers. Well, the organic farmers all have to put signs up outside of their farm saying, don't spray here because this county comes along. And like any sumac or anything that's growing along the side of the road, they come by with chemicals and spray it. And so there's, you know, there's tension around this all the time. Um, but like you were talking about the political differences, um, the one way to connect or the one way I find that people do connect is uh, when they understand the benefit. You know, so we had a governor in Minnesota who wanted to put a 50 foot buffer on the edge of every farm field. And man, they had to fight to get that into law. And the reason was, is to prevent all the runoff from, you know, going into the rivers and streams of all these chemicals and stuff. So you, put a buffer there and it slows down the runoff from going into your streams. Well, the moment they went into all the different rivers and lakes in Minnesota, which prides itself on nature um, and tested and found all these chemicals in every one of the lakes and rivers and so on, then it was kind of like an epiphany moment for people. And they're like, well, maybe, you know, maybe we should figure out a way to do this. But you got all these farmers who are going to lose 50 feet of land now all the way around. So what do you do? You have to pay them, you know, you have to give them money to not farm that area. So there's like, this is kind of like those solutions that we're talking about. Um, there's like a, maybe a right way to do thing, do things or get people to form a consensus around something, but it, it's hard work. 
you know, and it's hard to convince people like, yeah, we're going to give up land. I mean, we see this with the mask issue and so on in our, in our society now. And it's like, even though you have facts that say like water droplets, you know, cause this virus to happen, uh, it's hard to convince people to go along with it. Yeah. So like, you know, making artwork about landscape. Um, like I said, I don't think I'm going to convince anyone to you know think a certain way but just that idea of bringing up uh that question in their mind to think about it hopefully sparks some kind of dialogue yeah i i think it's true i think it's in important to get that dialogue going i've i've throughout this conversation a couple of things have come up one has been the grand canyon um, and the other has been rural and city and the politics of different kinds of landscape. And something keeps popping in my mind that I just want to introduce. And this idea of wilderness or pure landscapes having more cultural status, where you see really wealthy people developing um, kind of private preserves near national parks or near wilderness. And, and there's, there's a redemptive quality to this where um, you, you enact, uh, you know, good conservation values and good um, stewardship, which is very important because it, it's helpful. Um, but it, be, it becomes a kind of a cultural status element that is not available to everyone. And I'm wondering if you, and, and, and I, I brought up the Grand Canyon because I'm reminded that when we were in the manifest destiny stage of things and uh, that it was an abyss. It was a horrible place that you couldn't farm. That was a real obstacle to getting to the coast. But over time, uh, the railroad made it, you know, and, and Thomas Moran uh, made it this mystical land of of uh, of of wonder that we that we've de we decided to preserve rightly so but that that story of art transforming our our vision transforming our ideals is is one that I wish we heard more about when we're talking about conservation and and as a culture we were more actively trying to transform pe how people want to live with uh, the environment that they inhabit um, so I feel good about making art, you know, in my small way that does a little bit about that. But I wonder if either of you have any ideas about how, you know, we could culturally make uh, that kind of transfer, you know, cultural transformation more the story and more the aspiration rather than just only getting your perfect piece of nature and keeping it that way. How do we get everybody to want to make these radical transformation of vision? How would we make it bigger? Through podcasting. Right? Isn't that what we're supposed to do? Good yeah. answer. <laughs> no, you know, that's what I'm, as a gallerist, that's what I'm like constantly asking myself because I really truly see the magic of what art is and how it can show up in people's lives. But I think what it is, is we've become so engaged as a culture with just taking information in that we're not really having uh, dialogue around anything anymore. You know, we're just accepting kind of this stream that's given to us and fed to us and we're not questioning. And so for me, it's how do we use art as a catalyst for having a conversation? And because art can show up as everything. 
You know, it can show up as an environmental conversation. It can show up as social justice. It can show up as our idea around capitalism or you name the subject matter. Art can show up there. And it asks us those questions. So for me, it's how do we invite people in to have those conversations in a real sustainable way? How do we make art cool again is one of my questions that I'm always bringing up. How do we make thinking something of importance again. And because art is really only there to ask those questions, I think that's why it's so important that we have conversations like what we're doing right now to introduce the idea that the only thing, the only reason why this exists is to have a conversation about what's coming up for you as a person when you're standing in front of this type of artwork. Yeah. And I I purposefully make my work three-dimensional, even though it's uh, it's taken a decade or so to make it so that it can be constructed without falling apart, so that it can ship and so on. Um, I purposefully make it three-dimensional so that people who actually are standing in front of it can have a relationship with their physical body with it. We are so removed from the physical world with our faces in our phones all the time and like everything now even more so of course because of the pandemic but um even before the pandemic uh, i teach in a high school and i would say 90 percent of the kids walking down the hall are just looking at their phones you know even if they're walking in a group they're all <laughs> they're all walking in a group looking at individual phones and so we we uh, we experience the world through this flat screen and i think there's something magical that happens when someone confronts a piece of artwork that's three-dimensional that doesn't have a frame around it that isn't protected um, there's something that they're invited to explore in the same way they might if they went out on a walk in nature now i always wanted to make a art exhibit that you know it was like my artwork on the wall and then maybe it was the opening was you got to see the artwork and then for the rest of the show it just said get the fuck out of here and go to a park you know, and it just invited people. I always liked that. Uh, <laughs> I always liked that uh, pop artist who said, "My work is an invitation to look somewhere else." I think it was Rauschenberg. My work is an invitation to look somewhere else, and I thought that's really beautiful. You know, like to have that humble approach like that. And I thought, well, if I'm a landscape artist, why are you in this gallery? You know, like go out, here's a, here's a brochure to go to a park, go experience, you know, nature or land firsthand. Uh, you know, I didn't ever actually do that project, but, um, <laughs> well, I love that for a title. First of all, yeah. um, you know, I, I, you know, uh, that's up there with, uh, this will not match your couch, uh, yeah. for show titles. Mm -hmm. Um, but uh, I, I think you've nailed it in a, a couple different ways. That's something as a curator and a gallerist I'm always thinking about is how do you create the context for which people engage in art? How do you slow them down for a second so that they can really have that conversation? And adding that mixed media to your work creates a little bit more of that environment. And I think, Don, you do that the same way with scale in your work. You know, some of your pieces I've seen are nine feet tall. Yeah, I try to make it a, a physical experience and an immersive experience that 
reaches out around the viewer. There was a period of time, and the Denver Art Museum has one, where I would have sound included, um, where I would uh, install elements from that place. If it's a drive-in movie theater, the speakers and then the sound of the grass, the sound of cars going by would bring it in. And I was always inspired to do that by Robert Adams saying he wished he could have the, the sound of these places in his photographs. And so, you know, anything you can do to kind of make it immersive seemed like a really good idea. Um, so I lately kind of like I, I at first I loved the cell phones because of smartphones, because, um, you know, I found that all of a sudden everyone could understand any kid could understand uh a, a 300 degree panorama. Whereas if you used to paint something like that, it was just so weird. It was like, it was like trying to teach people about analytical cubism. You know, they just didn't get it. How can I be looking all directions at once? And the, the concept of looking at a head turn now, an eight year old intrinsically intuitively understands that. And the idea that you can change an image with your hand. I mean, before smartphones, uh, you you know, you had to go to college and learn to draw before you got, you know, I mean, people just didn't do that. They had, they had sort of lost that hand, eye thought connection. We, we weren't doing it anymore. So I was glad about that. But I, but now there's so many images and, and, and the, the way it has to be formatted, the square has become incredibly important, you know, so that you can flip through on Instagram. Um, I find that it a little disturbing how, we're being reformatted. Um, so when, you know, in, in these templates of online, you know, bits, I, I think of the, going back to the beginning of this talk um, of uh, plein air painters. Now, I love direct observation. I think that's just such a powerful tool of learning. You know, it's like, it's like the spoken word. It's that basic. So I often think everybody should have to learn to do that to just make an image of what they're seeing um, as part of education, especially in such a visual culture. But I find that what happens is most people learn a set of little templates and then they just kind of piece together. You know, and you, you could, I mean, Bob Ross was fascinating because you could watch him do the same tree in every different paintings in slightly different places. And it's that template that becomes the limit to our understanding. So, Anytime I see artwork that is that is taking a form and then extending it and asking further questions, I am I'm thrilled and I and I, I just want to share more of that. You know, you bring up an interesting point, and I think this uh, you know is something that we engaged with on a previous podcast talking about portraiture. Um, there is this abundance of imagery nowadays where once upon a time landscape used to be a way of kind of capturing, you know, uh, a faraway place. Um, now we see so many images of everybody's travels, photographs, everybody's backyard, everybody's tree in their backyard. You know, we're just inundated and inundated with this imagery. How do you create something of importance that doesn't get lost within all of that? I think about. You know, initially when I started, I thought, you know, photography has been so important. I want to use it in my artwork. I had a period where I only worked from life. 
And I, then I decided, no, you know, it's just shaped so much of everyone's vision. I want to translate photography as well as what's in front of me. And a lot of what I, I used to make collages that were part of the part of the uh, paintings uh, and then add three-dimensional elements, all as a way of just integrating it, trying to make it a cohesive whole, this barrage of images. And now I think of it more as... Um, editorial there's just such a flow and i i want to kind of make it make sense i want to make it a, a coherent thought because it's just so overwhelming and ultimately confusing i mean i feel like it's it's analogous this this information this visual information is analogous to man and the landscape you know we've become the sublime We've become the avalanche that destroys things. Um, and these images are the same way. It's, you know, we're not, we're all learning like um, haphazardly how to organize visual information. And I wish it was more conscious. And I think one of the things that artists do is make it a little more conscious, make it a little more aware and say, you know, you can really think about these things and it's worthwhile. Yeah. I was just thinking like, why do people like your work? You know, why do, why, why do people like my work? What is it about an artist that people need anymore? You know, it used to be like you had a drawing room and you pulled out your pictures and you showed people like, look, you know, like, here's this thing. And now um, you know, like you said with Instagram, you get visually stimulated or fed images by the thousands if you desire um, by, you know, hundreds of different artists. Um, and so what is it that people are drawn to? Sometimes I think about backwards designing the experience. Like, what do I want people to experience from my work? What is it I want? I mean, obviously we think about that, but like um, on a conscious level, like, who is your audience? What do you want them to experience when they look at your work? And, you know, I find that um, I, I want people to have that kind of tactile, that in their body experience. I want them to be reminded of their body um, by the fact that maybe they could break the piece if they get too close, by the fact that they're worried about like, you know, could that thing be broken? How is it protected? You know, all these questions come up when you make a, a three-dimensional work. Um, but yeah, I, I just think that that's a really good point that you made. Um, well, what advice would you give to uh, an artist who's starting to kind of find their voice and landscape on how to develop that further? Yeah. <laughs> advice <laughs> advice <laughs> i usually try to stay away from advice um yeah. just because i know it's 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 an individual journey for anyone and it also depends on what your what your take is you know obviously if you're going to be a landscape painter or someone who deals with landscape you have an appreciation for something within the natural world and how you then formulate that to become your dialogue with your viewers, such a personal thing. Um, I just know for myself, when I'm out looking at artwork, the things that interest me the most are the things that 
I don't quite understand in the beginning, you know? And so as an artist, if I can understand it, I go, eh, I, I could probably do that. You know, like I didn't do it, of course, but like, you know, it's not like mystifying to me. It's not exciting to me. But when I see, uh, I'm going to butcher his name, David at, at, at MNJ, uh, Canadian artist. Sure. You know, you know who I'm talking about? <laughs> uh, when I see his work with the mirrors and the plexiglass and the figures and like, you know, all these uh, like crazy duplications of things within this, you know, giant installation, I just look at it and I go, okay, <laughs> there's something I don't quite understand. It's like poetry. It's like something that I'm intrigued by. And so when it comes to I, I have that with Mark Bradford, he just I just am it's so I just feel so it's so deeply felt for me. I just go, whoa. And it fascinates me. I could spend days. Yeah, I think that's the thing is like it's this unique personal voice that's doing something in a way that really makes us pause. I know with music, it's the same thing for me. When I hear some music that I go, oh man, this is like, I don't know what this is. Usually a month later, it's my favorite thing because it's so unique and it's taking the world and synthesizing it in such a unique way that my first listen, I'm shocked by it. And that's when I know someone is thinking out there about things in a way that is clearly unique and different. And I want to get to know that, you know, and I think that the same thing true for, for art. So like, if you're going to be a landscape painter, um, you know, I think that's kind of, for me anyways, that would be an important thing to be making some work that when people look at it at first, which is hard, right? Because who wants to be that artist that no one understands or likes? <laughs> no one. <laughs> Right. You want to be the artist that like people go, oh, that's cool. Like right off the bat. It's hard. But I think like, you know, um, that mystery in the work and that personal voice is probably one of the most important things to creating any work that's valuable. Don? Yes. <laughs> I, yeah, I think that personal voice is really what animates anybody that does really good work. And it's, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to be aware of that when you're starting out what it is. And I can remember um, trying really hard to come up with creative and original solutions to visual problems and, and then slowly realize, you know, as I'm out in my life, that I have such an eccentric view if I try to be really, really normal all the time, it's still going to look just really strange. <laughs> did you have, did you have a moment where you realized like, um, this is the, this is the way I want to be making my work. Was there like an epiphany moment or was it like a slow progression? Um, well, there was a, you know, there was a, an epiphany in terms of audience. Um, I had been to school in Boston, moved to Seattle for a while, and then found myself back in Colorado where I grew up. 
And I had left there and I felt it felt a little bit like going back. I was moving to a mountain town, which is wonderful for most people, but there's often an absence of culture in little mountain ski towns. And, and I, it's not so much true now, but I mean, you know, there, we've had great strides made in Colorado, but I, when I went back, I felt, um, it was just a really difficult move for me. And in terms of, is there enough money in art to, to make a living? I was making a good living in Seattle and, and Boston, and it was just kind of a struggle. And that struggle became the subject. And I started painting like where people who work in ski towns live, not where people go to stay for their vacation, but, you know, the trailer parks just outside of the, of the main town and all these kind of alternative landscapes. And I thought, no, no one's ever going to buy these. Right. And then there turned out to be an audience for that because um, everybody knew the Rocky Mountains weren't the Alps even though all the advertising tried to make it look like that. And people kind of were kind of hungry for that reality. Um, and that was kind of, that was an epiphany that if you paint what people are trying to understand, what they hope to, to um, resolve, then that, that can compel them. It was a great shock. <laughs> yeah. So maybe that was the moment. Thank you for that question. Well, and I think that's some wonderful advice to anybody who's trying to find their voice is to chase their natural curiosity um, and kind of see where that leads. Thank you both so much for joining me today. I, I feel like there's a lot more that we could speak to about the landscape and kind of the future of landscape painting as well. Um, but that's all the time we have. So thank you guys. It was really thank great you. having you. Thanks for having thank us. Thank you, Doug. Thank you, Gregory. Thank you. Thank you everyone for listening to the Artbound podcast. For more information about the guests and what we've discussed, go to artistnetwork.com slash artbound. You can also find ways to connect with me and the Artbound team. We'd love to hear from you. If you've enjoyed the show, subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you listen. Artbound is an artist network podcast and produced by Golden Peak Media. It's hosted by me, Doug Casina. Our producer is Daisha Clay, with audio engineering by Evan Rutherford. Director of podcasts is Jared Mayer. Executive producer for Artist Network is Scott Meyer. Trisha Waddell is the director of content. Sarah Van Patter handles all our marketing. And Vanessa Childers does all things digital. If you'd like more information on sponsoring or advertising on Artbound, go to goldenpeakmedia.com. I'm Doug Casina. Until next time.